Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Carol Walker, who you will know for her 20 years as a BBC political correspondent, now presenter on Times Radio. She's been on CNN, Sky News, Talk Radio, everywhere. And her new book, Lobby Life, Inside Westminster's Secret Society, is an absolutely cracking read and mixes a history of the lobby as well as her personal experiences of it in the time that she covered basically from the major era to the Johnson era and all the big moments. And we talk about so many of that. Before that, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Firstly, thank you for all your lovely messages following the episode with Toby Perkins. I found it just cathartic to take part in. And I'm glad that um, glad that so many of you found it a great tonic as well. Obviously, for supporters of uh, Scotland and Wales, uh, also... I guess the same feelings, pride at being there and the way our team's played. Also sadness that uh, that uh, Scotland and Wales didn't go further. And obviously from an England point of view, sadness that we didn't win it. So uh, hopefully, and even if you weren't a football fan, I think the politics around uh, England specifically and uh, this tournament merited um, talking about and things that I'm sure as listeners of the show, you would be interested in. On a lighter note, don't forget to email the show with your stories of embarrassing encounters with politicians or just strange places you've seen, and particularly if it's abroad, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Russ has been in touch. He says, I was a soldier serving in Iraq in 2003. Wow. My word. Well, firstly, Russ, amazing. And, uh, you know, on behalf of all of us, Thank you for having served in the armed forces. Uh, He says, the day in question, we had a pretty bad patrol. And for some reason, I was told to man the comm centre phone at headquarters that night. At 11pm, the secure tack rings. Don't know what that means. And he says, the voice at the other end of the line asks to speak to the brigadier. I politely ask who it is, uh, as it would involve waking him up. He very politely says he's Tony Blair, the Prime Minister. I immediately think it's someone playing a joke and tell him to fuck off. The phone rings again and it's the same person. I proceed to tell him his impression is shit. And it could have been me, Ross. He says, uh, and if he really was the Prime Minister, then maybe you could answer the burning question of why we're still here, even after the war is over. And it, w- it was a fucking disgrace that our replacements were covering the fireman strike and how they didn't have anything to moan about. I hung up again and giggled to myself. Apologies, of course, to any fireman listening. Uh, the next morning, I was summoned to headquarters to explain why I had told the prime minister to fuck off. Apparently, the brigadier wants to court-martial me. But Tony Blair had insisted that no action be taken as he understood how much stress we were under, adding, tell him not to worry, the strike is being sorted. Absolute legend. Wow. Russ, what a story. Well, I feel like we need to do a special reunion episode where we get you both on. Perhaps you could recreate that call. 
My word. Um, keep those stories coming in, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Today's guest, Carol Walker, is an icon of pol- uh, political broadcasting in the UK, one of the most talented political journalists this country has produced. And as I say, her new book, Lobby Life, Inside Westminster Secret Society, is a cracking read. Um, I've put the link to it so that you can buy it, should you wish, in the blurb. But I began by asking Carol what attracted her to political journalism. Funnily enough, it, I kind of fell into it, actually, Matt. I'd worked as a news reporter and a news correspondent most of my life, really, and I'd travelled quite a lot. Uh, I had two small children under the age of two, and I was finding that dropping everything and rushing off to war zones was just not working tremendously well. And I was always kind of interested in politics, but I had no political background at all. And I thought I'd try and do it for a little while. I managed to arrange through the BBC to get switched from my foreign affairs unit to the political unit on a trial basis um, with the boss at Westminster saying to me, by the way, I don't want to hear any crap about you having to get home to your babies. So that was a a very reassuring start uh, (laughs) to the political world. Um, But once I got there, the politics just got under my skin. I found the more that I learned about it, the more that I experienced, um, the more that I found out about the people that make our laws and run our lives, um, the more fascinated I became. And so, yeah, I ended up staying there another um, 20 plus years. Obviously, before you were in the lobby as a war correspondent, you covered the fall of the Soviet Union, the Gulf War, Somalia, stuff going on in the Balkans. Do you think without that experience, you wouldn't have then made the move to the lobby? Had you had you gone down a different initial path in journalism? Now, it, it's covering those wars. Ultimately, you're covering ultimate politics, aren't you? These are the, the biggest decisions that leaders will take. Do you think in a way that was a crucial nudge towards the lobby? Well, I think I'm still absolutely fascinated in particular by global politics, geopolitics um, and the way that uh, nations and political leaders position themselves on the international stage. Um, Did I see that as a preparation? Matt, I had absolutely no career plan whatsoever. It was just something that happened. But um, In a way, I went from a situation where I would land in a country um, not knowing anything and not knowing who to contact and not knowing where to go. And I landed at Westminster and it was a similarly challenging environment. I mean, it feels from what you say in your book and you're very uh, tactful about some of your colleagues and and things, but it it does feel not just like a male dominated arena, but a particular type of male that if, if one was to be slightly less generous, would say a kind of slightly pompous know-it-all uh, that you were kind of surrounded by. I mean, is, 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 that, uh, is that unfair? Look, there were a lot of ambitious people in the political unit at Westminster who are now big household names, people like Hugh Edwards and John Sopel and Jeremy Vine, John Sargent, Robin Oakley. Um, It was a competitive environment. To be honest, the the male thing never really struck me. That was just um, what the wider world 
was kind of like, but weirdly, it's only been while I've been researching this book and talking to a lot of women for one part of the book um, that I've realized quite how tough a lot of women do find it at Westminster. Um, at the time, I wasn't particularly bothered or even aware of that. Um, I think some MPs, especially when I was trying to make contacts and get to know people in the first place, were condescending rather than actually sexist or threatening. But I think I just played on that and kind of used it to get stories and sort of say, oh, thank, thank you. I mean, it sounds pathetic now, doesn't it? Um, but I don't think I was struck by being a woman in a man's world because that was kind of quite normal. You know, I'd traveled with all male teams abroad from the BBC. Um, the BBC newsroom at that time didn't have many senior women in editorial positions. So it kind of just seemed quite normal. And I mean, I unlike I know some people have had very difficult experiences. And although there were certainly circumstances, um, particularly when you're in a late night bar and so on, that maybe you're not feeling entirely comfortable, I never really felt threatened, bullied or experienced any of the serious intimidation that of course some people have gone through I guess as well as well as uh, gender thinking about race and class it's predominantly male predominantly white privately educated kind of middle upper middle class preserve I mean in the time in the time that you had in the lobby did that begin to change at all towards the end yeah very much I mean I think even quite a lot of the men in the lobby uh, would admit that if you go back um, to the 1990s, it was still something of a male club. I mean, there were women who uh, blazed a trail ahead of me, people like Eleanor Goodman, who became the political editor of Channel 4, um, uh, and others who, um, Julia Langdon, who was there decades before me. Uh, but it was a very male dominated environment. I was certainly, there were occasions. I remember when I went to my first lobby briefing and unlike now when it's in a sort of fairly anonymous Whitehall building, we used to go into one of the sitting rooms at the front of number 10 Downing Street. And uh, at the time, the press spokesman for the then Prime Minister, John Major, was Christopher Mayer, now Sir Christopher Mayer, who went on to be the British ambassador to the United States. And um, we were literally crowded into this sitting room and I was the only woman there. And there was a real pecking order and it wasn't a gender thing. It wasn't a sexist thing. It was just all the senior political editors bagged all the decent places on the nice comfy sofa. And of course there aren't enough chairs and the more junior people like me uh, sort of, I, I sat on the floor and kind of, you know, tried to sit decorously and looked at Christopher Mayer's wonderful red socks. And it, there was a real pecking order to it. it. It was like a club. And a lot of the 
blokes that I've talked to say, yeah, it was very much like a gentleman's club. That has changed a lot. And it, it certainly changed a lot in recent years. And we can now look and see that you've got um, people like Beth Rigby at Sky and uh, Laura Koonsberg at the BBC, who are some of the biggest names in political journalism. And I think having women in those positions does make a difference. But it was a gradual process. And yes, it, it, it's still a very, uh, it's, it's not a particularly diverse place. There are very few non-white uh, members. I talked to one of them uh, in the book who's talked about her experiences of being uh, one of the first black women in the lobby, but it is changing. It's changing gradually. I think there's a will to do this, but of course, um, you know, there's always more to do. It's odd, isn't it, that uh, obviously so much of the focus on diversity rightly is, is on the diversity in the House of Commons and in government. Um, but often the people who report on it are sometimes sort of less diverse than the people they're writing articles are about diversity about. You know, there's that joke, um, my, I think, attributed to Michael Gove that um, he believes that one day, um, he wants to live in a country where one day someone who went to a state school could end up being editor of The Guardian. And uh, <laughs> it's a really funny line, but it, it speaks to a kind of truth, doesn't it? That we, we get our news often via people who will judge politics and politicians for their lack of diversity, but actually just as there's just a lack of diversity in the, in the journalist class as there is in, in power itself. Yeah, and I'm very conscious, Matt, that I'm talking to you as a, as a white middle-class woman, um, but I did go to state school. Um, I didn't have a political background. I, I didn't go to an elite school. Um, I think things are changing in the lobby as they are elsewhere, um, but it takes time. And I think what's interesting, if you look at, for example, um, the Spectator now does blind CVs to try to address this. And I think there's a consciousness and an awareness of it now, which there certainly wasn't when I first joined the lobby. And, and even as it developed and it became maybe less of a of a gentleman's club there was this kind of blokish element to it I remember when Alistair Campbell was Tony Blair's press secretary and he would come in and all the senior political journalists and they'd all talk about their football teams and who'd done what and I wasn't really immersed in the culture of football and I had no idea who they were talking about and if I mentioned that I supported Norwich City I'd then have to try and remember who'd scored on Saturday and it just wasn't part of my culture. So there was that element to it. But, you know, Matt, when you're there working for the BBC, and most of the time, you're incredibly busy. You don't really think about this stuff. You just get on, try and get what you want out of the session, ask the question that, that you need to get. You're focused on the story that you're trying to pursue to get the lines that you want to talk to the people that you need to speak to and that really was my focus I wasn't really thinking about any of these wider cultural or gender issues so perhaps I'm as guilty as others maybe I should have done more to to address them I, I just went along with it some of the places that you got to work and you mentioned this in the book about when you handed in that pass it was only then you realized that actually it had been this kind of a past that had unlocked some amazing um places and i've been up to the i've been up to the lobby room right up the top of that spiral staircase in part a tiny cramped room but there is a kind of magic and a conspiratorial air to it you know the rooms that you talk about where you're in there these cramped rooms with alistair campbell and actually 
these are places the vast majority of people will never get to see. And for a long period of time, we're never on the record. You know, they're kind of secret places. And you say in the book that journalists wouldn't even tell other journalists that they'd been to these briefings, such was the, the, the nature of the lobby at the time. I mean, you must reflect on and that time as a kind of magic, you know, someone who loves politics, you know, those behind the scenes, behind those, you got to go to basically the inner sanctum of power in the UK. I mean, that is a, maybe it's something you only appreciate afterwards. Well, that's absolutely it. I think it was only when I handed in that little brown laminated pass that I realised afterwards that it had been a real golden ticket, that you can get into parts of Westminster that are otherwise uh, the only people who are allowed to go there are MPs and their staff and their advisors. They're not in general areas where the general public get to go. Um, In particular, the members lobby, which is literally this Gothic lobby outside the chamber of the House of Commons and indeed one outside the chamber of the House of Lords, where you are allowed to just walk up to MPs and ministers as they come and go and as they're going in to make their statements or coming out after votes. Um, It used to be a prime place for grabbing people and finding out what they were thinking and what they were saying. These days that happens more um, over in Portcullis House, which is this newer uh, extension built to house MPs offices. Um, But yes, you do get to go up and the lobby afternoon briefings are always held in this tiny briefing room that's right up the top of a gothic tower and you know your first test as a political correspondent is to find your way there and to find your way back again and you're right uh, when I look back over the history and and I spend a fascinating time delving through the parliamentary archives uh, which include a lot of the the lobby papers Uh, and talk to people like Chris Moncrief, who for many years was the Press Association's chief political correspondent and a legendary figure in the lobby. And he said that when he'd first started there in the 1970s, um, not only was he warned that, you know, these lobby briefings are secretive, don't talk about it, don't quote from it directly, But no, don't talk about the fact that you've been to a lobby briefing in the earshot of anyone who's not been there in case someone else finds out that they're happening. Don't tell your wife you've been to a briefing from the spokesperson for the prime minister. You know, he said it was like MI5. And of course, things have gradually changed, but there are rules. I mean, it was only after I left that I realised there was actually a little rule book which was updated by my now colleague, uh, Tom Newton Dunn, who's now at Times Radio. Um, When he was chairman of the lobby, he updated the rules. Um, But uh, it's written in capital letters, you know, do not talk about the lobby. Um, Do not describe anything that's gone on within the lobby meeting room. You must stay until the end of the meeting unless you have a kind of life or death reason to have to leave. So, it, it, it was a very secretive institution. There have been gradual steps along the way. Alastair Campbell made the, uh, a move which had been proposed for many years beforehand, but under him, it, it, they finally went onto the record so that you could quote what a spokesperson for the prime minister had told you. Um, uh, and it's taken a long time since then um, when, 
you know, the rules haven't changed that much since then, to be quite honest. I should say that the other thing about being a member of the lobby is you do get, you, part of the rule is you get a briefing, it's twice a day when the House is sitting, from the spokesperson for the Prime Minister. And that, of course, is one of the great privileges of being a member of the lobby, along with that kind of access, pretty much all areas, VIP pass. Are there good reasons for that element of secrecy? Um, and as you say, it's changed a bit, but there's still a little bit now. Is some of that in the public interest? I think that for a long time, it was mutually convenient. You know, when I began working at Westminster, I realised that all these people who talked about, um, I understand from my sources, or my, my senior, a, a Downing Street insider has revealed that they'd just been to the lobby briefing. I mean, it's not really that hard. Um, but those were the rules then. I mean, we're now allowed, when, you, when it's reported now, uh, political reporters will say the prime minister's spokesperson has said, and they will quote them. But back even when I first joined um, in the 1990s, uh, you couldn't give away where uh, your, your, what your sources were. You couldn't even, it was, it was, it was considered quite a change when Gus O'Donnell uh, became press secretary and um, allowed himself to be described as a Downing Street source. And in a way, I think some journalists, not all, quite enjoyed being able to, you know, tell their news desk as well. I, I, my Downing Street source tells me that there's going to be a very interesting statement this afternoon. And, you know, they'd only actually just been along to a lobby briefing. Um, and for Downing Street, of course, it's a crucial way of getting their message across, um, of putting their spin on a story, if you like. And when you look back on it, you realize how dangerous it was when they were able to do that with this great cloak of anonymity. Um, I mean, if, you, if we think back to pre-war, Neville Chamberlain himself, when he was trying to sue for peace with the Nazis, would brief the lobby correspondents himself and would tell them, look, the negotiations are going fantastically well and we're going to keep Britain out of the war and there'll be peace in our time, as he, of course, famously um, uh, claimed once he, he did that publicly. But he would, he would brief them that these negotiations towards a peaceful settlement were going wonderfully well and they would report that the negotiations were going wonderfully well. Not that Downing Street claimed it or the Prime Minister claimed it, it would just appear in newspapers as though it was a statement of fact. And you realize quite uh, what an effect it had on the public's understanding, these rules that surrounded the lobby when you look back through its history. Just thinking about that, um, that element of, of lobby journalists, uh, you know, talking about their sources and I understand from a source, you know, all that stuff. And that obviously we're so used to still hearing some of that now. How Important is it for you? Maybe it's not important at all, but to have your own distinctive voice in the way that you relay that information, either to your colleagues or to your audience, whether it's in print or whether it's in broadcast, because there is 
just as politicians end up sort of sounding the same, the danger sometimes with political broadcasting is that they all kind of end up sounding a bit like this. The prime minister said this morning, and that has become a new way of sounding like a political storyteller. Was it something you were aware of? I remember Tessa Jowell saying to me that her daughter would say to her, you don't talk like that normally. And then when I see you interviewed on the news, you sound like a politician. Is the same risk present for political broadcasters and journalists? There's clearly a risk of that. Uh, I think particularly when I worked at the BBC for many years, the fundamental principle was that we were supposed to be uh, unbiased, uh, to take in all shades of opinion. But increasingly, I think people expect broadcasters, including the BBC, not just to say, well, on the one hand this and then on the other that, or, you know, so-and-so said, you know, the Tories say this, but Labour say the other. They expect you to um, make judgments on stories and how they are playing and how they are, are affecting the political standing of our political leaders and so on. So I think... It's like any performance, isn't it? If you're broadcasting, if you're appearing on radio on or on television, maybe you project a little bit more. Maybe you think a little bit more before you open your mouth than if you were down the pub with your mates. So I'm, I'm sure that is the case. But I would just also pick up on the point about sources and all of that. Whilst it is always important to be as open and transparent as possible about who has told you things, if everything had to be on the record, an awful lot of good stories would never be told. If we look at some of the stories that have emerged, if we look at, you know, perhaps people who um, are unhappy with the way that their party is being led, but just feel for the sake of their constituents, they're not ready to go public about it. If you think about whistleblowers who come back, who come forward and will talk off the record to a journalist to say, look, this didn't come from me, but you might like to know that this is going on. If we didn't have a way that people could, without their names being immediately published in the newspapers or online or broadcast to the nation, a way that they could talk to journalists who they trust to pass on information, then we would, as a society, find out an awful lot less. Um, you know, uh, I actually have a huge amount of respect and admiration for our political journalists as a class. I think most of them work phenomenally hard. They have really good contacts. You have to build up contacts, not just with the Downing Street news spokesman, but the but with people on from all shades of opinion across all parties because it's only if you've got that that you can then explain it to a wider audience and explain some perhaps quite complicated uh, political developments or policies in a way that the wider public can understand and what you'll find is that journalists might spend a huge amount of time i mean i i remember frequently as a bbc political correspondent um, being given a huge select committee report, which, uh, you know, a bunch of MPs have probably worked on for a year and a half. It's been through a lot of careful drafting and so on. It, it, it could be, you know, up to an inch thick. And, oh, yeah, 
can you, we've got a bulletin, can you just do us um, 35 seconds in about 20 minutes, you know? And that is part of what you have to do. Yeah. So sometimes maybe if, if some of us end up resorting to a little bit of jargon or oversimplification, perhaps that's understandable. But also in a way, and I don't know whether this occurs to you, whether it's correct, but you're kind of the entertainers of the news world. You know, you're the ones who have the gossip. You're the ones who, you know, they're the most exciting bits. So the bits outside, you know, number 10 or outside Big Ben, you know, where you go, oh my God, it's like the psychodrama of Blair and Brown or what was going on with Theresa May's hung parliament or the rise of Boris Johnson and Brexit. They're the most exciting bits. You know, the anchor person gives up the kind of headline and then they come to you and you go, I understand that there's going to be a move again. You're like, wow. Like you just have them. It must be one of the best jobs in the world to be a lobby correspondent in, in, in Britain. It is. Uh, it can be a phenomenally exciting and dramatic place to work. Um, uh, one of my... Uh, first big assignments was being on the road with Tony Blair in 1997 when he won his first landslide election victory. I know people listening will have all kinds of different views of Tony Blair and his entire political legacy as viewed through the prism of the Iraq war and I talk a bit about that in the book uh, but at the time it was a huge shift in our politics you know, there, there were people voting who'd only ever known a conservative government. This was a huge and dramatic shift. There were some of these senior conservative ministers who'd been household figures for decades who were swept from power. And there was a whole new political class taking over with uh, a, a pretty far reaching programme of change. And, you know, I've covered other elections and downfalls of governments and so on. And yes, I mean, those moments are phenomenally exciting. And when you work there on a daily basis, when you spend many hours perhaps on the less glamorous parts of the job, um, going around talking to people, listening through long news conferences and thinking, oh my goodness, is there a single line I'm going to get out of this? Um, you know, it, all of that is essential, I think, to give you the broader perspective when you come to report on those big dramatic moments. But yes, I mean, yeah, there were some phenomenally exciting moments. And I, I think that's what as journalists we all live for, don't we? The, we don't live for the, the, the humdrum day-to-day -day stuff that goes on. And you know, some of those lobby briefings, you kind of come out and think, well, that's 40 minutes to my life, I'm never gonna get back. What am I gonna say out of that? Absolutely nothing. Um, but then there were others when you thought, oh, well, that was interesting. And you've got a little inkling of a big story, a big dramatic change to come. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Must be so difficult because at the time, obviously, you're just in the day-to-day, you're following your nose, you know, you're constantly immersed in more than one story at any one time. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, sort of looking back at that at that broad career and the time that you covered from Major to Johnson, what are the moments that, what are your sort of defining memories? I mean, I realise that's quite a broad question given the, the sheer amount of time that you covered, but are there moments that really stick out? You mentioned 1997 in Iraq. Are there perhaps, people might guess those, you know, you'd guess the big moments, Brexit, Scottish independence, Iraq, Blair, Brown... Are there perhaps other moments that people might not guess? We go, actually, oddly, that thing really sticks out. I think if I'm honest, the, the moments that stick in my memory are those big political moments. Um, I remember being in that scrum outside Downing Street on the morning after the EU referendum when the country had voted for Brexit. And, uh, you know, sooner than anyone expected, David Cameron stepped out and announced that he was resigning. And that did feel like a huge moment because the, I mean, as, as we all know, uh, the vote for Brexit wasn't widely predicted. I think we'd all seen hints that perhaps it could go that way. But going from that morning, um, hearing the news at 4am when it became clear that the country had voted to leave the EU and then being there in Downing Street with this hushed expectant crowd of other hacks, you know, jammed in behind the media pens and uh, David Cameron announcing he was going, it it did feel like a big moment for the country. Um, And and when you're right in there at that, and I, I covered two election campaigns with David Cameron and you know, got to know him a bit. And it it did feel like quite a significant moment for our country. So, no, I'm afraid, Matt, I haven't got secret moments that were wildly (laughs) exciting. They're they're all the big ones. All those big votes when we were waiting to see, is Theresa May going to survive? Is she going to get through? Is that vote going to happen? What's happened to that amendment? And, you know, that whole process, when you find yourself studying the uh, parliamentary order paper, talking to MPs about, you know, Amendment 5, subsection C, and trying to find out why that's the important one and what the numbers are looking like. Uh, That kind of, those events really, the big moments when power hangs in the balance are the moments when you really feel, wow, this is an unbelievable moment. But the thing is that at the time, 
you're generally focused on thinking, right, okay, so am I going live the minute he stops or are they going back to the studio? And um, has it been pouring with my rain and is my hair and makeup an absolute wreck? And can, or can I get from where I am now to the live position in time for the next hit? So when you're in the middle of those moments, you just tend to be focused on what you're doing at that time and your next deadline. And I think it's only subsequently when you look back that you realize quite, that I realize quite what a, a privileged experience it was to have that front row seat on some of those incredibly dramatic moments for the country. Just thinking about the lobby, and you alluded to it earlier, the, the, the sense of a pecking order, which I guess means that in any lobby briefing, the more senior people get to ask the questions first. If you're new, by the time it comes to you, you basically all the best questions have gone. How do you then either reframe the questions you wanted to ask or think of new ones? I think if the question's already been asked, I don't bother to answer it. I mean, one of the big criticisms of the lobby, which I address in the book, is that, oh, they're just like a, a pack. They, they'll go after one subject and... Uh, they all operate together and they, they lack their own individual analysis. Well, firstly, I think if you look at the way individual journalists land individual stories themselves day after day in publications like The Times or on the, the BBC or on ITV News, I think that that um, shows that there's uh, that that argument doesn't hold up. But, you know, I also talked during uh, the research for this book um, to many of those who briefed the lobby journalists, um, which was absolutely fascinating. And, and I'm very indebted to them for the insight of what it's like on the other side when you've got a gang of journalists um, who are there and out to get a story. You're there as the spokesman person told to stick to an individual line and they're trying their damnedest to, to knock you off course. Um, and, and sometimes that pack mentality can work because one person will say, well, have you got confidence in this minister who's deemed to have stepped out of line? Um, so does the prime minister agree with what that minister has said on a certain issue? And I say, and so the, the, the working as a pack, um, yeah, I can see that that is a reason to criticise under some circumstances, but it can be, show the strengths of the lobby. And, you know, I talked to the wonderful Sir Bernard Ingham, who uh, was press secretary for Margaret Thatcher for 10 years. And of course, I mean, he notoriously um, stepped out of line once or twice, you know, the prime minister would have stood in front of the commons and given her full backing to certain ministers who'd, who'd strayed from the agreed government line. And he would find himself under questioning, saying things like, John Biffin, well, you know, he's always been a semi-detached member of the cabinet. And of course, the entire uh, audience of political judges, oh, right, so he hasn't got long to survive. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, he, he didn't have. And in fact, John Biffin, um, who, who hung on to his job for a bit, in fact, um, did subsequently lose his job and called his autobiography uh, semi-detached. Uh, so he reveled nice. in it. So the phrase, you know, sometimes you can just manage to squirrel a phrase out of a spokesperson 
um, which can give you a story. Um, these days, you know, they're, they're just almost too damn professional and try and avoid it. Um, but those moments have given us some, some pretty big stories over the years. When you think of some of those individuals that you faced in those briefings, you mentioned Christopher Mayer and Alistair Campbell. Campbell, since Ingham, by far the most famous of those individuals uh, uh, and in a way seen as probably the most adept. And I remember when he left Downing Street in that role, there was a real sense that actually the journalists were quite sad that he'd gone because they knew that when he spoke, he really spoke for Tony Blair. Was he the most skilled of all the people that you saw in that position? Well, I think that what you got with Alistair Campbell was somebody who was genuinely very, very close to the Prime Minister, to Tony Blair. He'd been there at the start of the new Labour project. He was there in just about every single meeting that the Prime Minister had. And you knew that when Alistair spoke, you would be getting genuinely what the Prime Minister believed. And that, in a way, is why Bernard Ingham, now Sir Bernard Ingham, was also such a big figure, because he was so close to Thatcher um, that, you know, he told me that he didn't even necessarily talk to her about every single specific issue. He kind of knew what her line would be on things. So when you have figures like that who are genuinely very close to the prime minister, that is an incredibly valuable source for you as a journalist. Um, the other thing about Alistair Campbell, of course, was that during those lobby briefings, he he was prepared to engage, to enter into, into a bit of joshing and argument about the merits of a policy. So you stood a good chance of getting a story out of it. And, you know, Alistair Campbell has, you know, he was a role model for uh, Malcolm Tucker in The Thick of It and portrayed as who, who the Thick of It character was this constantly swearing furious Scott but Alistair Campbell for an enormous amount of the time could be incredibly helpful and and could actually um, explain the thinking behind a policy could talk about what Tony Blair was trying to achieve and so on so I think that's why he became so powerful but of course spin then became a hugely negative thing for the Blair government. And everything was then seen through the prism of spin. So every time he opened his mouth, it was, it was seen as spin. Alistair Campbell told me um, when I talked to him for the book that you know there was a huge furore when he talked about the fact that uh, the government as part of its education reforms wanted to bring an end to the bog standard comprehensives. And there was a huge outcry about it um, from people who supported comprehensive education and really uh, felt that it was offensive to talk about bog standard uh, comprehensives. And Alistair Campbell told me that he only used that phrase because Tony Blair had used it in a speech a week earlier and nobody had picked up on it. But because Alistair used it in a briefing to a bunch of political journalists, everyone's ears were, oh, bog standard, oh, that won't go down with, well with some of the teaching unions. And, and it becomes a story. And so I think what happened then was that the Blair government realized that spin was becoming incredibly damaging for the reputation of the whole government, um, that nothing was being taken, nothing they said was being taken at face value. It was all being seen as some kind of giant spin exercise. 
So they switched from having Alistair Campbell doing the um, briefings to uh, a civil servant, um, the name of Godric Smith, a, a, a very, um, a greater contrast to Alistair Campbell you couldn't imagine. There was him and Tom Kelly who took on the role. And Godric, when I talked to him, told me that before his first news briefing, um, someone had briefed senior members of the lobby to tell them, we're going to bore you with Godric, Godric and more Godric, which um, for this poor, <laughs> absolutely charming civil servant was maybe not quite the the build-up that you would want as you go into your, your first session as the new uh, press secretary uh, for the prime minister. He'd been working uh, in Downing Street for a while, but he then took on that role. And yeah, I mean, lobby briefings did become a bit more boring. Let's let's be honest, but that's what the government of the day decided they needed to do. They needed to damp down the whole thing, stop the whole circus, the constant focus on spin, uh, the fact that anything Alistair Campbell said being blown out of all proportion. And that was their approach to it. And uh, ever since that day, the main briefings have been taken by a civil servant who is not supposed to stray onto political territory. And then you get sort of separate, <laughs> separate bits of spins from the political advisors outside those formal lobby briefings. I just feel like that Campbell era was almost like the golden era of the lobby, really, in modern times. That great Michael Cockrell documentary, News from Number 10, where you see Alistair Campbell giving these briefings, it made it feel very glamorous and very exciting. We're now in a very different period, and, and you talk about this in your book, but we ended, um, you know, the sort of, not, that we're, not that the Brexit era has ended, but the last few years, really, Political journalists, journalists in general, feel like they've become the targets of the sorts of stuff that politicians as well have been the targets of. It feels like the tone has really shifted. I mean, did you feel that personally around the Brexit debate and since? I think that all of us uh, who were working in politics in that era were aware of just the strength of feeling on both sides of the argument and the way that this was a political argument which really gripped the country. Um, and in a sense, actually, that there was a real difference from, in the way that the whole Brexit debate was perceived outside those metropolitan areas, certainly outside the Westminster bubble. Um, and going out covering the Brexit campaign on either sides. Um, it did feel very different out and about in the country. And it was clear that this was an issue on which people did feel incredibly passionate. Um, I think that during that Brexit campaign, um, I'm not sure either side really um, realised the complexities uh, of what had been unleashed. Um, clearly, David Cameron also expected that this was an issue that he was going to put to bed because he thought he was going to win it. Uh, and it, it would resolve these arguments. But of course, it really opened them out. And yeah, as journalists, um, you're frequently a target. I think anyone who's on social media knows that uh, any comment can be seized on by one side or another on the Brexit issue and on certain other issues and that you can 
be a target. I mean, anyone who has any kind of public profile these days. Um, I mean, the other thing that has changed recently is social media. When I started working as, as a journalist and as a political journalist, you know, there, there wasn't any social media. I was broadcasting, I was looking forward to the next bulletin. Um, but if people were livid at what they said, they, you know, there was a few letters in green ink to the BBC, but it's a different thing when people can pile in on Twitter. And uh, a lot of political journalists have found themselves the target of some really appalling torrents of abuse. Um, and, uh, you know, clearly that is unacceptable. Um, but I also see that there is, um, you know, these issues are not easy ones to address. Uh, the government's currently looking at the online safety bill, how you stop that. Clearly, there are certain um, instances of posts which appear pretty clearly to be already outside uh, what is allowed in terms of the racial discrimination laws. Um, but as a journalist and a broadcaster, if someone says, oh, yeah, what Carol Walker says is rubbish and she's talking absolute bollocks. Um, I mean, is that abuse? Is that acceptable? If they use another word instead of that word. Is that abuse? So it's, I, I do understand that it is far more complex than people might realise. Firstly, to establish the laws, establish the framework, protect freedom of speech and, of course, to police something as um, widespread and global as uh, the internet. You raise a very good point there, though, because it's not just about the stuff that's abusive and nasty and criminal. Just the fact that people can be negative towards you is a new thing. That you know, in in the past, people would have just shunted to themselves while you were on telly or on the radio or shook their head as they read your piece. Now they can actually at you on Twitter and say you're rubbish or, you know, you don't know what you're on about. That's still a negative thing for you to see and to take on. And does any of that impair your judgment, make you perhaps overcorrect, change the way that you do things? How do you handle seeing and receiving negativity? Um, I think I try not to let it get to me too much. I just uh, acknowledge that there are um, a few people out there <laughs> whose opinions I don't probably value very much who are, who are going to post them online. I try not to um, take too much notice uh, of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think I've got the most uh, controversial Twitter feed uh, in the country. And, um, you know, maybe that is uh, me being a little bit cautious about that. Uh, you know, I feel I have built a reputation, uh, I hope, as uh, a political journalist with with some experience and some judgment uh and you know I, i'm i'm not really out there as some journalists are to provoke a massive argument on social media as an attempt to try and boost my profile so perhaps um perhaps you know perhaps that's why i've escaped too much abuse i mean you get a bit but it um it's one of the hazards of the job these days isn't it Sadly, yes. Uh, you, you've since gone freelance after leaving the lobby. Where, now when you're in that world, as you still are, but you know, thinking about your time in the lobby, where, um, and perhaps the hierarchies that exist and the individuals that end up presenting shows and hosting shows and getting different gigs, what were your ambitions? Did you ever think, well, actually, you, you want to get to the position that, say, Andrew Neil's in, where he does these interviews throughout the elections and they're the kind of big set piece, you know, you'd want to do the Carol Walker interview, or did you think, Actually, that's not where I want to go. I, where did your own 
you know, where did you want to end up? I think I was probably just ambitious for the next big story, if I'm honest with you, Matt. Um, you know, perhaps that's why I'm not a political editor. Um, I think my ambitions were just focused on, on, on the drama that was unfolding on the next story, on wanting to be on the big story. And yes, wanting to cover it on the, on the big outlets. And yes, I think I did um, in my latter years in the lobby, really start to um, appreciate it when I had an opportunity to do longer political interviews. And, you know, I now host um, a show every weekday night on Times Radio. And my approach is not the Andrew Neil one. Uh, ours is more of a conversation. I hope that I do challenge uh, the politicians that we have on every night and make sure that they are held to account. Um, but I'm not there to pin down our political leaders. And I think that We've reached the stage now where all politicians are so schooled in how to deal with aggressive interviews that I'm not entirely convinced that you necessarily get everything you want out of an interview if that is your approach. I'm, I'm a huge admirer of Andrew Neil. Uh, he's clearly a brilliant interviewer. Um, we have a slightly different approach on Times Radio, but I, I, I love talking to politicians still, um, challenging them their, about their views uh, and, and trying to find out why they hold those views and um, where they feel the, our politics is going, uh, where they, what they feel is gonna happen on a certain policy and having a wider perspective as well, talking to those people who are affected by the policy changes, um, by the people whose uh, lives will be governed by the laws that are passed in our parliament, because that's after all why our politics is so fascinating. And um, because these people are making decisions that will affect our lives, that will affect our livelihoods. And uh, yeah, I, I still find it absolutely fascinating having opportunities to talk to MPs, ministers, former MPs, advisors, commentators, and all the rest. So no, I, I do, I miss the lobby in many ways, um, but I, uh, I, I certainly uh, am still completely fascinated. I'm still a complete political nerd. Um, why did you leave? Uh, simply because I decided to move on from my job as a political correspondent for the BBC, um, an organisation which I loved and respected and where I'd worked for most of my adult life. And I decided it was time to move on to pastures anew and so at that point um you know the lobby pass is handed out to political organizations to reporters and correspondents who need to have that kind of access to do their jobs and as a freelance i wasn't necessarily entitled to one um and then i began working on the book so there you go <laughs> <laughs> and what about you know you, you observe these people who do these briefings you cross-examine them yourself Alistair Campbell had been a journalist and then he became Tony Blair's right-hand man. But was there any other part of you that thought, actually, if, if a party came along or if a leader came along at the right time and they asked me, I'd consider being on the other side of the fence because I've, I've watched how to do these briefings and fancy doing them on behalf of someone that I really believed in. There's a few times when I've considered it and um, a couple of occasions when I um, nearly went to work inside government rather than for a political party 
Um, but I think probably I'm a bit better at being a journalist. <laughs> Maybe it's just I've had more experience at it, Matt. Um, and you, you become used to viewing things through that prism. I know that people who've been journalists who go to work inside government say that on their first day inside, they think, oh, God, that's a really good story. I wish I'd known that when I was outside. So clearly it's a very different world and a very different experience. Um, but I'm not sure that it is such a bad thing as some people think for people who are journalists to become special advisors and vice versa, or to move from being politicians to become journalists. Uh, I'm all for as many people from as wider backgrounds as possible to move into all these spheres and um, to make sure that we get the widest possible uh, backgrounds in our political leaders and those who are uh, covering what's going on. I totally agree. I, I always think it's really unfair when people say, oh, well, they used to work for this person or whatever you think. Well, it's insane to think that politicians, that, that journalists don't have their own politics and that should the right offer come along, that they've got a transferable skill that makes total sense. They would, you know, for being grand about it, working for the government, put your skills to the service of the nation to ensure that government runs better. I just think there's, and equally the other way around, you're like, well, they've under, they've been on that side of the fence. They, they can give extra insight, perhaps, you know, going to the other side and broadcasting about it. So just thinking about the times when perhaps you might have worked in government, would that have just been like director of communications for a department or for number 10? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I considered going to work for a department. It didn't quite work out. Um, I, I, at the time, I might have been slightly disappointed, but actually, you know, five minutes later, I thought, actually, it's probably just as well. <laughs> yeah, and it's probably, I wonder if actually, you know, the, the other problem, the, the one that you described is, oh, you see these stories and as a journalist, we should broke them. I wonder if actually, it's probably a bit less exciting than being a member of the lobby. I, I think that what I would say, Matt, is that I've had the most amazing experiences. You know, it has been a real privilege. And the thing about working as a political correspondent is that you're always working on a story which, even if it's not the biggest story on that day, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's something that's really going to directly affect people. Um, you, you can, and you can work on so many different issues. I always tried to, um, because of my background before I went to work at Westminster, I kept a big focus on international events, international diplomacy, defense, and so on. And there, there are huge decisions being taken there. And as a journalist, you know, you can flip from one story to the, to the next. So when, the, the agenda moves on. I mean, yeah, God, perhaps that shows that I'm a, a little bit too shallow and frivolous to have got stuck into the day-to-day um, -day grind of a government department. So perhaps it's just as well I didn't do that. But I've had an am amazing career as a journalist and, I, and I'm continuing that. And I feel that my experience as uh, a, a news reporter and as a political correspondent and you know the contacts I made there the experiences that I've had um, have been absolutely brilliant of course there were days that were you know pretty rubbish um, it's a relentless job it's very very demanding particularly the hours are very demanding um, you can sometimes get to the end of the day and think well what was all that about um, but overall, when you look at the grand sweep of it, um, I just realised what an incredibly privileged 
what an incredible privilege it's been to have enjoyed all of that through my career and continuing to be able to bring those experiences to the role that I have now, where I'm talking to so many different people across all walks of life every evening. Let's sort of do a hypothetical then. Let's say you, you were working for a government as, a, as an impartial civil servant, uh, as, a, as a you know briefing journalist, as an official spokesperson. What would your tips be? You know, if you were to go in there and they said, Carol, you know, how do we sort this out? And what, what are the best ways to brief the lobby? What, what would you say? What are your top tips for people facing the lobby? Well, I think it's fascinating that when um, during the book, when I was talking to some of those who did brief uh, the lobby and uh, Tom Kelly, who did the job for Tony Blair, including during and after the Iraq war, um, said the key thing was to make it, it was to engage with lobby journalists, to make it a two way process, to talk about what you're trying to put across. And as he explained it to me, he felt that that could then be very valuable for government because you can then realize and understand from the questions how your particular proposal or idea is likely to be portrayed and how it's likely to be received in the wider public. And it was fascinating getting his insight about how that two-way process could be mutually beneficial to journalists and to government without either side getting too hostile. And what's the best way? You know, you describe those moments where a, a, a spokesperson is trying to, you know, put you off the scent or uh, something like that. What is the best way if you're if you're the spokesperson to kind of outfox the lobby in a, in a tight spot? Oh, listen, Matt, I, I'd, I'd encourage them to open their mouths and say exactly <laughs> what they think in the strongest possible language, because that's going to give me a story for that night's bulletin. Um, you know, I'm not going to encourage a government spokesman to dead bat my questions and tell us absolutely nothing at all. I'd tell them to let rip, say what they think and give us all a good headline for the next day. Carol, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. Well, there you go, Carol Walker. What an absolute treat that was. So many great stories from such a brilliant career. And, oh, man, I envy her, as I'm sure many of you listening to this will, getting that proximity to all those different regimes, you know, being there for the major, the fall of the major government, Tony Blair's rise and fall, Gordon Brown's rise and fall, David Cameron's rise and fall, Theresa May's, Boris Johnson's rise. Um, obviously, the fall will eventually come, but uh, Carol uh, presently in, isn't in the lobby to witness it. But my God, what an amazing job. And obviously, you know, you're holding the government to account, but you're also getting all the secrets. And I also think you're working in some really cool places in the Houses of Parliament, in those tight spiral staircases and those cramped rooms, which must be a nightmare at the time. But looking back, you can really sense Carol's, uh, you know, just the, the pleasure she took in, in working there and in Downing Street. And my God, it must be incredible to, you know, when you've been a political journalist like that, in a, in a role like that, to look back on these huge moments. And obviously she talks about David Cameron going and the whole thing around that referendum to be so close to it, to be there on the day. And obviously you have a job to do, but uh, I think it's the sort of job that afterwards you can really enjoy those stories. And her book covers so many of them. And also it's a great history of specifically 
what the lobby is, what it does, its strengths, its weaknesses. It is a cracking read, and Carol was a fantastic guest. So, it's just so nice to have moved on from football. I promise that's the last... Uh, I will mention it for now and uh, to be back into covering uh, politics uh, in a kind of traditional sense. But uh, Carol was a superb guest. The book's great. And uh, I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.